Amen, amen, amen. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to open the book of Amos. Amos in the Twelve Prophets, Amos is sitting next to Joel. So if you can find Joel, you can find Amos. If you can't find Joel, I don't know what to tell you. So Amos is where we're going to be this morning. I do want, I need your help for just a moment. I need you to help me welcome some folks who are worshiping with us via live stream. We unofficially have a, a, another campus at the terrace on Mountain Creek Road. Miss Norma Haynes gathers up some folks, some ladies, uh, Gertrude, Lou, Mary Lou. I, I can't remember all their names, and there's some other folks there, quite a few of them. Every Sunday, they tune in and worship with us right here. So, church family, can we put our hands together and welcome those? Miss Norma and the terrace. Yes, welcome. Welcome, welcome to worship. Uh, you have Amos, I hope. I hope you found the book of Amos there. If not, I'll give you a little more time here to do that. That's what I'm doing. I'm kind of stalling, give you some time to find it. Uh, your, your, your towels, let me encourage you about these towels. I think I got a picture of one of our, maybe Garrett Beasley there. Yeah, yeah, he's got his 12th man towel on it, is, uh, I guess, at, at cross country or something. That's pretty cool. I got a text this week. One of our adults had it at a golf tournament. Said he's already had questions, answered questions from people about what is that towel and what does that mean? It's a gospel conversational starter, so use them for God's glory. Take them to the gym or wherever you need to take them with you and start up some conversations with, the Lord, with them about the Lord Jesus. So, here we are, Amos. Of all the twelve prophets, Amos is the least popular. He's the most unlikely and he's certainly the least popular. Now, I don't know if we've got some folks in here that would say, uh, any students or kids say you're pretty popular in school right now? Anybody want to? <laughs> At least they're humble, right? How about adults? Any adults? Were you a popular kid in school? Yeah, there's no humility over here with, with Josh. Anybody else? Well, okay. Um, okay, man, we're... Room full of unpopular people, I guess. <laughs> I, I was starting the fifth grade in 1985. I was in a new school in a new town, and I wanted to make sure that what I did, what I said, what I wore, would put me in the cool column, in the popular column, and not the uncool, unpopular column. So 1985, I want you to take a look at this fifth grader on the first day of school. <laughs> look at that kid right there. I got a brand new pair of black parachute pants on. Y'all know what those are? Anybody? I begged my mama. I begged and begged and begged. I can't go to school without a pair of these black parachute pants on. 1985, that was cool. Now, you see the stance I'm in, right? He's trying to look cool. Well, I know I look like I'm, I'm trying to catch the woe, I think, is the thing. I don't know. Whatever. Catch the woe or whatever. But anyway, that's, I'm not trying to be cool. Let me tell you what's happening in the context of this picture. This is south central Mississippi. It's, it's August. It's 100 degrees outside. It, the humidity's 200%. And these, these pants have suctioned themselves on my body. I can't breathe. I don't know what's going on with that shirt. I don't know what's going on with that hair. I don't know what's going on with that tank of a car behind me. But that was fifth grade, first day of school, 1985, when I guess that was a cool look back then. Get out of the car on the way into school, knowing I had one chance to make a first impression to be this new cool kid at school, and then I met Rick Deaton. Rick Deaton, he and I are buddies today, but in fifth grade, we were rivals. 
We competed for the same girlfriend. We competed for the same position on the football team. We competed in the classroom. We competed in every way did me and Rick Deaton. And Rick showed up to school that day, and he had on a black parachute pants, but he took it to another level. He was also wearing the coveted (laughs) Michael Jackson thriller jacket. Now listen, it's 100 degrees. It's 200% humidity. And he is cool, and I'm devastated. So he was more popular than I was in fifth grade. There's, it can always be said that there's somebody more popular than us, and there's always somebody less popular than us. But for Amos, that cannot, we cannot say that about Amos. Amos was the most unpopular prophet in all of Israel's history. And I want to show you why that is the case. Why would Amos be the most unpopular? Well, first of all, Amos was not a vocational prophet. He was a fig farmer. Not a pig farmer, but a fig farmer. A farmer of fig trees and a, and a cattle farmer and, and a shepherd. He was, not a, he was not seminary trained. He was blue collar, uneducated. He did not write sermons for a living. He did not only work on Sundays. He worked every day. As a farmer. And he had a message that God gave him for Israel. Israel is used to having vocational prophets like Isaiah. Who have a place in the king's court. Not a country boy from the backwoods. That's not what they were used to. And here comes Amos. And his message is not popular. Because at this time in 800 BC. Israel was at the pinnacle of peace and prosperity. They had never seen peace like they were experiencing then. All their enemies were little to no threat at all. Militarily, Isaiah was the, the one to fear. The unchallenged, dominant military force. They controlled all the trade routes. Every one of them. Their stock market had never been higher. Their economy was off the charts. Their border expansion was unprecedented. They were at the pinnacle of peace and prosperity. And here comes this old country boy in here preaching a doom and destruction message that you're going to collapse financially, that your military is going to cower in fear. In fact, this is how Amos said it. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. It should be on the screen. Amos 2, 15 reads this way. I mean, listen to this. He who handles the bow shall not stand. And he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And then it goes on and says this. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. He's talking about Israel's military. That is likened to Amos coming to America today and looking at us Americans and saying to us, Oh yeah, your Navy SEALs, they will collapse in the fetal position and cry for their mommies, okay? I mean, that's just unrealistic. That's unbelievable. That's not going to happen. Amos, what are you talking about? We're the military powerhouse. What are you talking? You're crazy. Get out of here with that message. And then he had a message of financial collapse. In Amos 3.15, God says, I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish. It was fairly common, apparently, in Israel at this time for you to have multiple homes. Had a winter vacation house, have a summer vacation house, and have a regular house. And Amos said, all of these are going to fall. All your prosperity is going to be stripped away. You're going to be naked, financially, militarily. It's gone. 
you will fall, you will fail. And so, not, not a popular message, right? Not very popular in Israel's day, especially at the pinnacle of their peace and prosperity. But the reason Israel fell and the reason anyone ever falls is not the sin from without, not threats from without, not enemies from without, but it's the sin within. And that's what Amos is hammering home to the Israelites. In fact, in chapter 5, he says, Seek the Lord and live. Seek the Lord and live. Seek me and live. Uh, Seek good and not evil that you may live. And that's our big truth today, our takeaway. Seek the Lord and live. That is God's major promise from this minor prophet. You seek the Lord and you will live. The promise is not seek the Lord and you will never be left out. That's not the promise. The promise is not seek the Lord and you'll never be lonely. That's not the promise. The promise is not seek the Lord and you'll never experience loss. Or you'll always laugh. Or you'll live it up in the lap of luxury. That is not the promise. God's promise is you seek me and you will live. So what is the application for us today? I want to make six of them. In nine chapters, we're not going to read the whole book of Amos. We're not going to read every chapter. We're going to pull verses from various places. So here's the first application for us on September the 1st, 2019. As we seek the Lord and live, what is that, how does that apply to me today? Number one, we must see our own sin. See your own sin, not your neighbor's sin. Don't look at the person next to you and talk about their sin. Or sit there today and say, preacher, get them. I'm glad so-and-so's here today. They need to hear this. Yeah, that is not what we're to do. We're to see our own sin, not somebody else's sin. This is how Amos does it in chapter 1. Amos hammers Israel's enemies. I mean, he hammers them. He hammers Damascus, Gaza, Edom, Tyree. Ammonites, Moab. I mean, he's just butchering them in chapter 1. And here's how he does it. The Lord roars from from Zion, chapter 1, verse 2, and thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. So there's a couple of phrases here that repeat. And the phrases are, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. That appears multiple times here in chapter 1. Also, they will, God will send a fire upon that house, and the strongholds will be devoured. So basically, these are nations that are relying in their own strength. They're not looking to the Lord. They're not seeking the Lord. They're relying on their strengths. And God is saying one day, these strengths are going to be destroyed. In fact, after three transgressions, three strikes, you're not out, but on the fourth one, you're gone. Now, if you recall, Peter said to Jesus, Jesus, should I forgive my brother who sins against me how many times? Seven times? So he took what the Pharisees did, three, and he more than doubled that and said seven. He said, God, I'm so good, I'm going to forgive my brother seven times. And Jesus said, try seven times 70. Try unlimited forgiveness. As long as we're in this age of grace, forgiveness has no limits. Now, one day we'll move out of the age of grace into the day of judgment and there'll be no more forgiveness. But today is the day of salvation. And today we're in the age of grace where there is forgiveness. But God is pointing to a day where on the fourth transgression, I will not revoke 
the punishment. Some people point to this as where the Pharisees got the idea of three strikes. And on the fourth one, I don't have to forgive you. You're gone. And so Amos is hammering these other nations. He's hammering what's happening outside of Israel. And God is saying here, God is not saying, well, I'm thinking about judging. I'm one day going to, con- I'm considering whether I should judge. I'm weighing my options. No, God is saying, I will not revoke the punishment. He's saying judgment is coming. The day is coming where all these nations are going to be judged. Now, through chapter 1, I bet Amos was getting a lot of amens. Amen, Amos. Get them, Amos. Sick them, Amos. Amen. But then we get to chapter 2, and he begins to turn the spotlight. From those outside of Israel to inside of Israel. What happens when God turned the spotlight on you and me? A lady in church was so excited. I mean, she was so excited. A preacher was finally going to preach on sin. She said, preachers don't preach on sin anymore. I'm so thankful that he's going to preach on sin. I mean, she was excited about it. So she got there and she started, he started hammering gambling and drunkenness and pornography. And she was saying, amen, preach. I looked to her neighbor and said, man, he's on fire. And you know what happened? He started preaching on gossip. And she looked to her neighbor and said, he needs to mind his own business. (laughs) Amen. Amos was getting a lot of amens in chapter 1. But then he got to chapter 2. And the amens were becoming, oh, mans. Oh, man, Amos. Hold on, Amos. That's too much, Amos. Slow down, Amos. Now look, look what he does. I'm not making this up. This is right here in the text. Chapter 2, verse 4. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Hey, Judah's getting a little close to Israel, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Now, Amos has a word for Israel, but Judah's pretty close. He's getting closer and closer to home. Now, for the nations in chapter 1, you can read it. I'm not going to read it all. But in chapter 1, you'll notice the sin of all the other nations was how they treated each other, injustices toward one another. They were treating each other uh, terribly. They were killing each other. They were selling each other into slavery. They were abusing each other. So the sin against the nations outside of Israel were their injustices among one another. But Judah's different. Look at Judah's sin. Because they've rejected the law of the Lord, chapter 2, verse 4, and have not kept his statutes. So they have sinned against God. Judah has rejected God. They've rejected his law. They're not keeping his statutes. So judgment's coming to Judah because they've rejected the law of God that's been given to them. And then he gets to Israel. So he's saying about the nations outside of Israel, they're terrible. That sin is bad. It's going to be judged. Then he turns to Judah and says, Judah, you're guilty of the sin against me. Those nations are guilty against sins against themselves. Judah, you're guilty against sins against me. And then he turns to Israel and said, Israel, you're guilty of both. You've sinned against one another and you've sinned against me. In other words, he's looking at Israel and he's saying, Israel, you're the worst. You're the absolute worst of all the nations. That's not a fun message to hear, is it? It's like him looking at us today and saying, Red Bank, you are the absolute worst in the whole city of Chattanooga, in the whole nation of America, in every nation around the world, to to whom much is given, much is required, and I've given you much, much. And your sin has come up before me, and it will be judged. That's the message to Israel. That's the message to us. I know this doesn't make me popular. It's not popular to hear. It doesn't make us feel good. It doesn't affirm ourselves. 
It doesn't make us feel like we're good, but it is what we must hear. We must see our own sin. God said it this way to Israel in verse 10 in chapter 2. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then look what he says in verse 12. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and command the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. So God is saying to Israel, Israel, you, you, you are going to rely on me enough to save you from Egypt, but now you're not going to listen to me? You're just going to use me to save you, and then you're going to turn your back on me and not listen to me? He's saying judgment's going to fall. It's coming. You've rejected me. You've treated each other poorly, and you can read all about that in chapter 2. It's kind of like today. You know, it's easy for me to stand up here and just hammer the injustices in the world. It's easy to stand up here and preach against the evil of Islamic terrorism or preach against the violence and vulgar on television or preach against Hollywood or preach against Washington or preach against the secular agenda that's, that's vying for the attention of our children's souls. I mean, we can get up here and preach about those things out there and hammer everything out there. But what happens when it turns on us? What happens when we start talking about our apathy toward the lost. I mean, what happens when God starts drilling down? That's why I'm an expository preacher, because if I was a topical preacher and just stood up here and talked about things I wanted to talk about and things you wanted to hear, all we would do would affirm each other to the gates of hell. That's all we'd ever do. But when we preach the word expositionally, what happens is God brings out those things that we don't want to talk about, those things that we don't want to think about. Those things that are hidden, our blind spots come to light. And so we can repent of that and grow in Him. And this is good. I know it hurts and it's painful. But God disciplines those He loves. He doesn't punish and judge ultimately those He loves because those He loves are in Christ. But He loves and disciplines those whom He loves. And so this is likened to us preaching about, hey, you know, I read the other day, that among Christians in America today, they give about 2.5% of their income to the Lord's work to support the work of the church and to support the work of Nathan Scott and his family in the IMB. 2.5% of our income. During the Great Depression, Christians gave 3.3%. So during the Great Depression, we gave more percentage-wise than we do today. Stats tell us that 80% of church members do not tithe. 80% don't tithe. And we come in here and we sing songs and we honor God with our lips, but our hearts are so far from Him. We go do whatever we want to do, sexual immorality, pornography, whatever we want to do during the week and come in here and sing His praises. A.W. A. Tozer said it this way, Christians don't tell lies, they usually sing lies. We come in and sing and we're lying the whole time we're singing because our hearts are far from Him. And Amos says, in fact, if that's not shocking enough, if you would take your Bibles and go over to chapter 5 and look at verse 23, this should rock your world. In Isaiah 5, verse 23, the Bible says, God says, take away from me the noise of your songs. It's just noise. You don't mean any of it. Your hearts are far from me. Your lips honor me, but you are far from me. Now, I know this is not fun to hear. I don't certainly like preaching this. I don't certainly, this isn't something I, I relish in. But it's the Bible, and we got to hear it, because God's doing something. So I know I'm not very popular this morning, so I want to try to rectify that a little bit, just a little bit. 
There is, Amos does get a little sweeter, okay? A little sweeter. So I'm, Matthew, come on up here. Let me get Matthew. Emma, come on up. Emma Henley, up here. Matthew, up here. There's some of our students. Y'all give them a hand. Y'all come on up here. All right, Emma. I've been watching, Emma's taking some notes. Matthew doesn't take notes. I don't know what's wrong with Matthew. Hopefully he's listening, right? Listening? Yeah, he's listening. They've both been listening. I've been watching them. So I want to let you know, it does get a little sweeter in Amos. It's not doom and gloom the whole time. So I've got some famous Amos chocolate chip cookies, okay? Make it a little bit sweeter for you guys, okay? Thank y'all. Give them a hand. Yes. All right. I'm at least popular with two people in the room. Okay, let's move on. Number two, there's a second application we need to make from Amos, and it doesn't get a lot better until we get, it gets a lot worse. So here we go. Number two, we're shocked by our own shamefulness. If we're going to seek the Lord and live, we need to be shocked by our own shamefulness. There is some imagery that Amos uses that is shocking, shocking imagery. I want to show you some of that in chapter 3. If you'll look again in verse 1, here's why, here's why God is where he is with the nation of Israel right now. Because he says, O people of Israel, chapter 3 verse 1, against the whole family that I have brought out of the land of Egypt, you only have I known. So God is saying, look, I, I saved you. See, God bringing Egypt out of Israel is grace, nothing less, nothing more than God's Grace. When people tell you there's no grace in the Old Testament, that's a bunch of garbage. There's grace all over the Old Testament. The Old Testament is grace. God brought them out of Egypt. That's grace. He brings them out of Egypt, and they're the only ones he's... God chose them out of all the people groups on planet Earth. He chose them. He says, y'all know better. You know better. And then listen to this imagery. Well, he goes on to say, I will punish you for all, somebody say all. All your iniquities are going to be punished. And so look at the imagery, some of the, some of the imagery he uses. Verse uh, 4, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? I mean, this guy's a hunter. He's a country boy. He understands that a lion is not going to roar until it has its prey. It's not going to roar before it has its prey because the prey will run off. All right? So he's saying God is not just blowing smoke here. He's serious about this. He goes on a little further, verse 5. Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Of course not. God is about to release the spring of judgment. Uh, verse 6. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? That's a warning system. Amber alert on our phone or whatever. A warning system that alert us to what is to come. So God takes this very seriously. And then look at this imagery. If this is not shocking enough, look at verse 12. Man, this is shocking. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion. Now, what would you expect a shepherd to rescue? A sheep, right? But notice what he rescues from this, this lion. Two legs and a piece of an ear. Church, that is a botched rescue, isn't it? That's a failed rescue. Because the rest of that sheep has been consumed by the lion. This judgment's coming. And Amos is making a point, God's making it through him, very clear, and it should shock us. Again, you can read, here's where the summer house and winter house are destroyed in verse 15 in chapter 3. And so what shocking imagery there is of judgment that's coming. And then here's why we should be shocked. We should not be shocked so much by our sin because Jesus has paid the penalty of our sin. He, has ta he took our shame on the cross. In fact, the Bible says 
to consider Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. He scorned its shame by being raised from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God, which means he and the Father are one, and he has forgiven us of our sin if we put our faith in him. So Jesus has paid, paid the penalty of our sin, but what should shock us is this. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. Through verse, from verse 6 through the end of the chapter, there's a phrase that appears over and over again. Yet you did not return to me. 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 Over and over again, we see this phrase. And in verse 6, the context of this, I gave you cleanness of teeth. This is not a dental plan. Their teeth were clean because they had nothing to eat. It's a famine. They had no food. Yet you did not return to me. I withheld rain from you, yet you did not return to me. Verse 8, I struck you with blight and mildew. Verse 9, yet you did not return to me. Verse 10, I sent a pestilence among you, yet you did not return to me. Verse 11, I overthrew you as some as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, yet you did not return to me. See, here is where we should be shocked at our shamefulness, not in what we do, but what we haven't done. Not in our practice, but in our posture. We have not repented and believed. We have not turned back to God. That should shock us. That should shock us. We should be shocked by our own shamefulness. Next. The next one is this. Start forsaking your sin. After we're shocked by our shamefulness, there needs to come a point in time when we start forsaking our sin. This we'll find in chapter 5. Seek the Lord and live. We've already talked about that. I want you to notice verse 19 in chapter 5. That's where we're going to park out here in chapter 5. The Israelites are saying we have favor with God. Obviously we have peace and prosperity. God is pleased with us. Yet their hearts are far from him. And so they are waiting for the day of the Lord. They can't wait for the day of the Lord to come. They can't wait for Messiah to come and overthrow their enemies. And notice what Amos says in verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? Are you sure you want the day of the Lord to come? Are you sure you want judgment to fall? Are you sure about that, Israel? And look at this imagery. What imagery is this? It is darkness and not light. The day of the Lord is not light, it's darkness. Jesus is not coming the second time to save. He's coming to judge as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So this is not light, this is darkness. And listen to this imagery. This is, wow. All you can say, this is wow. As if a man fled from a lion, that's a pretty bad day fleeing from a lion, isn't it? It gets worse. And a bear met him. Now, it gets worse. He goes to his house, leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Boy, that's a bad day. Flee from a lion, met by a bear, go home to safety, lay down, a serpent bites you. Not a good day. The point is, Amos is saying, you cannot escape the day of the Lord. There's no refuge. There's no escape. You cannot hide yourself. In Revelation, they talk about those who are trying to hide from God under the rocks and beyond the You can't hide from God. You can't find any refuge in anything other than Christ Jesus alone. He is our refuge. He has paid the penalty of sin. He has taken the full wrath of God. So for us, where we start, we have to start forsaking our own sin and start seeking the Lord. See, when you heard the gospel for the very first time, I pray that your heart was stirred. And at some point, 
you repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ. That's our initial response to the gospel. Now that may take hundreds of conversations. That may take several years. But when you respond by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you are repenting of sin and you are believing that God raised Jesus from the dead, confessing with your mouth that he is Lord, you call upon his name and you are saved. That is repenting and believing in the gospel as Peter preached in Acts 2, repent and believe every one of you. That is our initial response when we're saved. That must be our ongoing response after we're saved. Every day you need to repent and believe the gospel. You need to preach the gospel to yourself and repent and believe every day. So the seek the Lord and live is the Old Testament version of repent and believe. So to do that, we have to forsake sin. We have to turn from something to something. Let's look at the next application. It's in chapter 6, and it's worded this way. Stop settling for the status quo. Stop settling for the status quo, number 4. Look at verse 6. Woe to those who are at ease. Somebody say at ease. What does at ease mean? When somebody says at ease, what are you supposed to do? Relax, relax right? Just kind of, okay, I can relax a little bit. I can, I can be comfortable, right? I can be undisturbed. I don't have to be troubled, right? I don't have to be on guard. I can be at ease. And Amos is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion. Now, what's he getting at? Jump down to verse 4. You'll see what he's getting at. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory, stretch themselves out on their couches. They're comfortable, they're complacent, they're living it up in luxury. By the way, if you're in America today, you're wealthier than much overwhelming majority of our world. Eat lambs from the flocks and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs of the sound of the harp, and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, drink wine out of bowls, not cups, not glasses, but bowls, because you have so much, and anoint themselves with the finest of essential oils. Essential's not there, but essential oils. But, here's the kicker, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. So here's what he's saying. You have all these things, you're blessed in all these ways, yet you have no concern for the oppressed, you have no concern for people less fortunate than you, you have no concern for lostness. I mean, when you leave here today and you come back on Wednesday or Sunday, would, will you think about a lost person even for a moment? Will the lostness around you even cross your mind? When you leave here today, are you going to be more apathetic toward the poor or less apathetic toward those less fortunate than us? See, Charles Spurgeon was preaching a sermon on this text, and he identified three groups of people out of this section of Amos he said three groups of people that are identified in our churches today. Spurgeon's day can be applied today. Number one, Spurgeon says there's the apathetic. They just don't care. Uh, they, they're not cruel. They're not vicious people. They just don't ever think about lostness. They just don't ever think about people who are less fortunate. They're too consumed with themselves. And that leads to the second group, the self-indulgent. Maybe they care a little bit, but they love the creature comfort so much that they never actually make a sacrifice. And then thirdly, the procrastinators. They know what they're supposed to do. They just don't ever get around to it. They do care. They do think about it, but they never get around to doing anything about it. 
So where in your life are you apathetic? Where in your life are you self-indulgent? Where are you procrastinating when you know God has called us to have gospel conversations? This display over here is not in here because this is what your pastor wants you to do. This is a mandate from God himself. To go and make disciples. And to do that, if the Great Commission is ever going to happen, then gospel conversations have to happen. They just have to. And so that's our mandate. That's what we're called to do. But we're apathetic. We're self-indulgent. We're procrastinating. So in what way do you need to confess that and lay that at the feet of Jesus? Listen, every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every unsaved person this side of hell. That's why Paul said in Romans 1.14, I am under obligation. I am obligated to the Greeks, and I am obligated to the barbarians. Why would Paul say he's obligated to people he's never met? You know why? Because he met Jesus, and Jesus changed his heart, and he heard the gospel, and he realized, hey, this gospel is not just for Paul. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just for the Greeks. It's for all peoples. That's why Nathan and his family left and went to the other side of the globe. Why? Because the gospel obligates them to do so. And they're, you're not exempt. I'm not saying you need to be an international missionary. Maybe you do. What I'm saying is you are not exempt from taking the gospel across the street to your neighbor, to your family. And yet Amos says, woe to you. You're at ease. We're at ease. We're comfortable. Pastor, don't don't step on that. I'm comfortable. I don't want to hear that. I know it's hard. I know it's not what we want to hear. It does get sweeter, I promise you. It gets a little sweeter. I feel like I'm pretty unpopular. Ben, could you come up here? I need some popular folks in here today. Ben, could you come on up here, Ben? You know what, you've been listening, I've been paying attention to you, Ben, so I, I just want to, it gets a little sweeter. So here's some famous Amos chocolate chip cookies. Y'all give Ben a hand, huh? Thanks, dude. It gets sweeter, you just got to go a little farther, but it does get the Amos gets there, we just have to plow through this a few more minutes. So here's number five, we got to say what God says if we are going to seek the Lord and live, we got to say what God says. Now, let me show you. Amos was not the only voice in Israel during these days. There was another guy. He would be the TV preacher. He'd be the multimillionaire selling books and uh, had a place in the king's court. Very popular guy. High on the popularity scale. Made everybody smile all the time. His name was Amaziah, the priest. You can read about him in verse 10 in chapter 7. He's the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel. And he said to him, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. Amaziah is saying, Amos' message is too hard. It's too tough. We can't bear it anymore. And so Amos... Amaziah gets permission from the king to go to Amos and look at verse 12. Here's what he says to him. O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah. Eat bread there. Prophesy there. Just never again prophesy in Bethel for it's the king's sanctuary and it's a temple of the kingdom. And then I love what Amos answered. Amos says, I was no prophet. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a vocational prophet. Man, I'm, I'm a farmer. 
I was out farming and God let me see the state of Israel and my heart broke for God and he gave me this word. And so in verse 15 he said, the Lord took me from following the fox said, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. Amos is going to say what God says. I need you to pray for me that I will say what God says. Not what anybody else says. And I need you to pray for me that I will have the boldness to say what God says, that I will preach the whole counsel of God. Because here's what can happen. We can talk about topics that you like and I like. We can come together, pat each other on the back, affirm each other all the time, and preach passages and books that are, that are favorable to us, that we like. Okay, well, I can do, We can do topical preaching here, but I'm committed to expository preaching because here's what happens when you preach through the Bible expositionally and let the text bring the points out. Here's what happens. God touches places that we normally don't want to think about. He hits our blind spots, the places that we don't want to look to. And so pray for me. And here we see, he said what God said. And then, look, let me show you why this is so important. Look at verse 11 in chapter 8. And we're almost done. Look at chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Chapter 8, verse 11. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Of all the calamities in this book, the, the locusts, the pestilence, the, the famines, the, the fire that will devour, the strongholds, of all the calamity. Listen, there is no calamity like the silence of God. That is what Amos is saying. I must say what God says because there is no void there's no destruction there's no judgment or punishment no calamity like just the silence of God so we have to say what God says and then finally here's the last piece and here's where it gets a little sweeter eventually and that is celebrate the Lord's salvation so look here in chapter 9 you'll see in verse 7 God says, are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel? He's saying, look, Israel, you're just like all your enemies. You're no better than them. You know better, but you're no better than them. But then look at verse 8. Here's the glimmer of hope, church. Here we go. There is a glimmer of hope. Look what it says. Except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. There's hope there. Somebody say hope. Somebody say hope. Say hope like you mean it. Now look at 11. In that day I'll raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches. And you could read on about how the mountains and the hills will drip, drip with sweet wine and flow with, uh, with, shall flow from it. And then look at verse 15. I will plant them on their land. They shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. Now, God doesn't change. God hates sin as much today. He hates your sin as much today as he hated sin in Amos' day. He's not changed. God hates sin. I want to show you how much God hates sin. Isaiah chapter 3 verse 2. He says, I will punish Israel for all your iniquities. All of you. Somebody say all. Now you can go to Isaiah 53 and you can read about one who was crushed for all of our iniquities. You see... <laughs> Here's what God did. 
in His grace. He did not back up from judging Israel. Oh, He judged Israel. He poured all His wrath, the full weight of His wrath, He poured out on Israel. But it wasn't Israel the nation. It was the new Israel, Jesus. Jesus took all of our iniquities on the cross and He breathed His last and they buried Him. And on the third day, He rose from the dead. And He's alive today. And He gives life to any who call upon Him. This is why the Bible says, look to the Lord and live. That's why John the Baptist said, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that all who look to Him will live. Man, look to the Lord and live. I told you it gets sweeter. I told you Amos had a sweet side. 